1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 1 through 11. The topic, Paul was upset because believers were suing their brothers in Jesus Christ. The title of our message, The Sue's Brothers. <laughs> I don't know. I'm, I, I can't help myself. It's an addiction. I'm sorry. Hi, I'm Gene, and I write titles. But anyway, let's pray. Father, thank you for our morning. I always think, Lord, of your promise to the churches in the Revelation that you would be walking in their midst, walking in our midst when we gather together. Couple that with the fact that when the church gathers together, we are corporately the temple of the Holy Spirit. And exciting things should happen in our walk with you today. We should see you in the word and your word should get into us and teach us and bless us, correct us if necessary, but most graciously fill us with the wonder of your love. And so as we work through these verses that some people can find controversial, Lord, I pray that we would do so with uh, gentleness and understanding and that, um, Lord, we go out not just with more knowledge than we came in, but with more of a, a love for you and for your saints and for your church. We thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. And those who agreed said, amen. Naruto was just an anonymous macaque living in the jungles of Indonesia. One day in 2011, the photogenic primate happened on a wildlife photographer's unattended camera and snapped what has become the first ever monkey selfie. Naruto may have been just monkeying around, but it became a matter of monkey business. Watch for those during the study. When PETA got involved, PETA, which stands for people putting naked actresses on billboards, filed a lawsuit on behalf of Naruto, asserting that the monkey should enjoy copyright protection on the selfie. The organization hoped to use the proceeds from the picture to benefit the animals. In 2017, PETA and the photographer settled. The photographer agreed to donate 25% of future revenue from the photo to groups that protected crested macaques and their habitat in Indonesia. Both sides also asked the Ninth U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals to, quote, dismiss the case and throw out a lower court decision that said animals cannot own co uh, copyrights. We would call this a frivolous lawsuit at best. It never should have come before a judge in the first place. There was at least one lawsuit involving believers in Corinth that should never have come before a judge. In verse 6, we learn, brother goes to law against brother. It was worse than frivolous. It was, according to verse 7, an utter failure. There isn't anything wrong with courts and judges or the legal system in general. We're not told to avoid it because it is corrupt or unfair. It is wrong, however, for two believers to go to the secular court and submit their civil matter before a judge. The context of 1 Corinthians 6 is civil legal action, not criminal prosecution. A Christian may look to secular court to prosecute anyone, including Christians, who commits a crime against them. So what should we do rather than sue? I'll organize my comments on Paul's instruction around two points. Number one, when you are wronged, you should prioritize your testimony before the world. And number two, when you do wrong, you should ponder your testimony before the Lord. Let's take a look first in verses one through six at when you are wronged. Brother here in our fellowship called me at home because there was someone here at the building who said he had something to give me. 
I like surprises, but I wanted to know what it was. So I had him put on the phone. I grew suspicious when he wouldn't tell me what it was. I finally wore him down. He'd been sent to serve me with a subpoena. It was a case of a Christian suing another Christian that I was being called to testify in. Now, I knew both parties and had urged both sides to meet and let other believers judge. The offender refused to meet, and the saints, in this case a church board, did absolutely nothing. I want to tell you, I was really sick to my stomach to be dragged into a court situation like that. Uh, minding my own business, trying to do things that were biblical, and then two Christians suing one another. It was really a terrible feeling. I hope you haven't noticed, but lawsuits between Christians are on the rise. If you're a supporter of Gospel for Asia, you know they just came through a lawsuit brought against them by professing believers. We considered it frivolous from the start. A well-known pastor in Chicago brought a multi-million dollar lawsuit against a Christian credit union who held their loans. I read that he abandoned the suit once he realized that some things that might make a monkey out of him were likely to surface in discovery. Jerry Falwell Jr., head of Liberty University, has been the subject of growing public criticism by former employees. He was recently quoted, I'm not going to dignify the lies that were reported yesterday with a response. I am going to the authorities and I am going to civil court. He added that Liberty has hired the meanest lawyer in New York to pursue civil cases. Now, it's not that these people, the litigants, are unfamiliar with these 11 verses in 1 Corinthians. It's that they are reinterpreting them to suit their situation. And so let's look at them. Verse 1, dare any of you, having a matter against another, go to law before the unrighteous and not before the saints. When you become a Christian, God declares you righteous on the basis of Jesus' death on the cross. Uh, Maybe you're here this morning, you're not a believer in Jesus Christ. You can't work your way to heaven. There's nothing you can do. You have to throw yourself on the mercy of God, ask for the forgiveness of sins. And when you receive Christ as your Savior, God declares you righteous in right standing with him so that you can go to heaven when you die. The judges in Corinth were men who had not been declared righteous by God. All that Paul is saying is that they were non-believers. Whatever matter against another, it could have, and it should have been, brought before the saints. Now, you might think, or others might think, that the saints are not qualified to judge certain matters, that the courts would, frankly, do a better job. But in verse 2, Paul says, do you not know that saints will judge the world? And if the world will be judged by you, are you unworthy to judge the smallest matters? Let me make a general observation before commenting directly on this verse and its... uh, relation to the lawsuits. The Apostle Paul seems always to, in the present, be thinking about the future. His counsel on lawsuits is grounded in future events. He's talking about unfulfilled prophecy, looking forward beyond the rapture and the great tribulation to the return of Jesus Christ and his 1,000-year kingdom of God on the earth. And so his beginning argument is, in the far future... We know that these prophetic things are going to happen, and you should therefore live your life in light of what you know the future holds. We approach our lives in the present as futurists, living here, but looking forward to the city whose builder and maker is God. And that won't just correct our attitude towards lawsuits. It will kind of give us real focus on everything. 
thinking about eternity, where we will spend eternity, how we will spend it, who will spend it with us, those kinds of things, occupying our mind and heart will radically change how you live today as uh, the, the Lord becomes more real to you. Now, we who are saved in the church age are going to rule and reign over the world of the future with Jesus. We are enabled to rule now on matters that are among us. You might say, well, in the future, we'll be in our glorified bodies and we'll have that advantage. Well, right now, yes, we're in these bodies of flesh, but we're indwelt by the Holy Spirit, which gives us a leg up on uh, any other person making any other judgment because we have God, the Holy Spirit living within us. Paul refers to the lawsuit or suits among the Christians as the smallest of matters. He doesn't mean the matters were insignificant or that saints are only to judge small matters. He means that by comparison to what and who saints will judge in the future, everything is a small matter. He's basically just saying you have so much responsibility in the future that right now this should be easy stuff for you. Too often an offense gets blown out of proportion. You become convinced something must be done. That's because we put too much weight on this life and not on the life that is coming. He says, are you unworthy to judge the smallest matters? It's a sarcastic rhetorical question. We are able to judge all matters between Christians. Verse three, do you not know that we shall judge angels? How much more things that pertain to this life? We know that there are fallen angels. We believe one-third of those uh, of the angels followed Satan in his pride and his rebellion against God. Some of these fallen angels are already incarcerated. In the end, they will all be sentenced to the lake of fire, which the Bible says is the place created for the devil and his angels. Now, we're not told exactly how we will participate in this final judgment of fallen angels. That's not really the point. They've actually already been judged, and so, you know, we will somehow sit there and give our assent. There's no hope that any of the angels are going to get off. There won't be any crazy juries in the end. You know, I love the jury system, and I think we have a great legal system, but sometimes there's a crazy jury. I mean, some of the high public cases have done damage to the image of juries. So there's never going to be a jury in the future where juror number 666 decides that Satan really uh, had a bad childhood, and so, you know, we should let him go. I mean, this is all taking place, but somehow we are going to participate, and so it's an elevation of who we are and what we're doing in the end. And so the point Paul is making, he's not describing exactly what's going to happen, though we might be curious about that. He's saying if in the future we're going to judge supernatural beings, we ought to be able to handle smaller matters today without going to the court. Way back in the late 1980s, a couple in our fellowship bought their first Hanford home in a new tract. After moving in, the house smelt dank. Carpets were all wet in every room. It was coming up from the ground through the concrete slab. I mean, they were hoping for a water leak, but instead it was just seeping up through the slab. After many attempts to resolve the matter, they finally decided to sue the builder, but he was a Christian attending another church, and so I suggested that we try and resolve the matter uh, biblically. And so I met with him and his pastor, and at first he was resistant. Uh, He was, you know, standoffish, but after applying proper biblical pressure, he did what was right, and he took action to resolve the faulty construction. And so, yay, win for us. It can happen. 
Saints can sometimes resolve civil issues without the courts. And so it's a small example, but that's the kind of thing that Paul is talking about. It doesn't have to be resolved in your own church. There are organizations, Christian organizations, that offer arbitration, that do this all the time. And I would recommend that you take these things to strangers who are Christians, uh, because a lot of times people who know other people... Well, we had a failed reconciliation one time when it was a family in our church, and I took them down to what I thought was going to be a fair uh, hearing with uh, some other Christians, but it was just, I, I can't describe it to you, but it was awful. Everything was already decided ahead of time. Um, it, it just didn't go well. And so there are right ways of doing this, but it, it can work and it does work. And so then in verse four, if then you have judgments concerning things pertaining to this life, do you appoint those who are least esteemed by the church to judge? A more literal translation of verse four is this. If then there are questions to be judged in connection with the things of life, why do you put them in the hands of those who have no position in the church? If you go to court, you might get a Christian judge, but even then you can't expect to be judged by a biblical criteria. He doesn't say, are you two both Christians, and then say, we're going to abandon state law and apply Deuteronomy in this situation. And by the way, you don't want him to apply Deuteronomy anyway. You've read that. Be happy you're not an Old Testament Jew. Let's assume you don't get a Christian judge, because that's what Paul is talking about. He's saying those that have no position in the church are non-Christians. And so you don't get a Christian judge. Number one, he or she is not going to pray about your matter. They're not going to make it a matter of prayer in their devotions. The non-believing judge has no concept of asking God for wisdom to decide the case. There will be no cutting babies in two in order to figure out who uh, is right and who is wrong. He or she doesn't seek scripture to apply to your case. The judge isn't going to appeal to you to obey God's word. They're not going to go to 1 Corinthians 6 and read this and, and make an application. The judge isn't being led by the Holy Spirit. That means he or she cannot receive a supernatural word of wisdom or a supernatural word of knowledge that could resolve the matter. The word of wisdom is God giving wisdom for a situation uh, that settles the matter easily. A word of knowledge is God giving some knowledge to you that you can't otherwise know, like who's lying and what they're lying about. And so none of this is possible if you go to a non-Christian judge. And so essentially you cut yourself off from all spiritual help. You say, I don't want any spiritual help because I can get secular help. Stop to think about it. Taking the matter outside of the church to a non-believer is as dumb as a left-handed monkey wrench. Pause for laughter. You cut yourself off from all spiritual help. So what are some of the reasons Christians give for suing other believers? Well, I call one the principle of the greater good. The offended party or parties claim that it would do more harm to not sue. They're forced to sue for the greater good. Trouble is, I can justify almost any lawsuit as being for the greater good because I think the person I'm suing is wrong. A second one in the lawsuit I was subpoenaed in, one statement used to justify suing was that people won't tell the truth until they are under oath. In other words, Christians are liars until they have to swear in court. The plaintiffs therefore convinced themselves suing was not just permissible, it was necessary to get to the truth. That seems uh, convoluted at best. One pastor I know teaches that the prohibition on lawsuits only applies to believers who attend the same fellowship. 
So I can't sue you, you can't sue me until you want to sue me, and then you just go to another church. And then you can sue me because we're not under the same leadership. It's also been suggested that our understanding of these verses needs to mature because our culture has become more complicated. That's a way of saying that what Paul said is only true for the first century city of Corinth. Certainly, he didn't have it in mind for us. Another line of thought, and this is creative, is that the church can declare the accused offender not a Christian, taking him or her through a discipline process, at the end of which they say, well, you're not a Christian, which then clears the way for them to be sued by the believer. Convenient. I just don't see that kind of wiggle room in Paul's words. There may be cases, I don't want to say 100%, because I, I was reading some Christian attorneys who said, now, there are cases, for example, where you end up having to sue because insurance companies are involved. And so you're not really suing the Christian, you're suing their insurance company. Uh, and there may be a few other, you know, case-by-case -case things. But in general, like all the lawsuits I mentioned this morning, they're all uh, wrong. And there's no basis for them biblically. And so verse 5, I say this to your shame, is it so that there is not a wise man among you, not even one, who will be able to judge between his brethren? This is definitely sarcasm. In our previous studies in 1 Corinthians, we've mentioned that the believers were trying to integrate worldly wisdom with the word of God. They considered themselves wise, wiser than Paul. They boasted about it. But now in the act of filing a lawsuit, they show that their wisdom was lacking. They were acting like there was no one in the fellowship wise enough to make a judgment on this small matter. And so while they said they had this tremendous spiritual wisdom of things Paul couldn't even understand, they couldn't figure out how to have this, you know, civil case decided. And they decided that they needed a judge who has no relationship to God. Verse 6, but brother goes to law against brother, and that before unbelievers. They were quarreling before the unbelieving world. And you know how, uh, well, today we would say this had gone viral. People love that. You know, it's like, hey, there's a quarrel. There's a fight. Let's go see. Let's watch it. Uh, some, by the way, some of this uh, stuff that's online, it, it, is it scary? I mean, drop your camera and go help the person, all right? I mean, come on. I mean, it, it's, it's like there's some kind of a uninterested observer. But uh, so, you know, and the non-believing world, they're always looking for a way to accuse Christians, and they were giving them ammunition. Did you hear about those Christians in Corinth? Yeah, that guy just witnessed to me. He wants me to go to church there, but now they're suing each other. I can do that out in the world. What's the difference? So think about it for a minute. The believers in Corinth had heard the gospel. They were saved. God, the Holy Spirit, indwelled them. They had come behind in no gift of the Spirit. They were sharing their faith in Jesus. The Lord was being presented as having power to save. He was God who can heal. The future was written in advance by him and was advancing towards its culmination. Believers need not fear death because absence from the body meant being present with Jesus in heaven. We could go on and on and on. And while all of that was their testimony, they behaved as if Jesus couldn't solve a simple everyday problem. Hey, Jesus can save you. He can forgive all your sins. He can justify you and declare you righteous. But that money you owe your neighbor, he's in the dark about that. There's no way he could be expected to rule on something like that. The priority ought to be our testimony to the world and in the world. Who will non-believers think Jesus is when we sue one another? A lawsuit against another believer is a declaration that Jesus fails. If wet carpeting can't be resolved, 
How can Jesus possibly be trusted with the weightier matters? Every lawsuit brought by a believer against another believer ought to start with this disclaimer. I declare that I do not trust Jesus or his saints to rule on my behalf, so I am going to behave no differently from a non-believer and demand my rights according to man's laws, not God's. My greater good is more important to me than the glory of God. I am knowingly abandoning my testimony that Jesus has power to help in daily life. Put it that way, you might want to think about it twice. And then number two, when you do wrong, you should ponder your testimony before the Lord. Uh, Do me a favor, finish this sentence. You have the right to remain. Everybody knows that because we watch procedural cop shows. Hopefully not because you've had any firsthand experience with it, but... Hey, we live in a great country. We have civil rights guaranteed by the Constitution of the United States. One of the reasons I used to love watching cops, remember the series Cops, is I'd say, they're violating their rights right there. No, you can't search that. Just say no. You know, but anyway, we have civil rights. We are simultaneously, however, citizens of heaven. Based on our heavenly citizenship, there's another way to finish that sentence. It goes like this. You have the right to remain wronged. Jesus most certainly exercised his right to remain wronged. Everything about his crucifixion was wrong. The Apostle Paul certainly exercised his right to remain wronged. He was terribly persecuted. Whenever he did claim his rights as a Roman citizen, it was only to further the gospel, never for personal gain or comfort. There was an episode in Philippi where Paul was beaten and thrown into jail. You remember the famous midnight concert and the jail opening and the jailer and his family getting saved. The next morning when they went to let Paul out of jail, as he was walking uh, along, he said, oh, by the way, guys, you magistrates of the city of Philippi, did I mention that I'm a Roman citizen? So they had totally violated his civil rights and they were in real, real trouble. And, And yet, why did Paul wait? Why didn't he avoid the beating and the imprisonment the day before It was a strategy to get favor for the church. The magistrates would be a lot more afraid of the Christians if this happened. And so Paul was able to sacrifice his rights in order to help the other believers. And so anytime he even did exercise his rights, it was to further the gospel. And so he told the believers out of personal experience, remain wronged rather than initiate lawsuits. Now, therefore, it is already an utter failure for you that you go to law against one another Why do you not rather accept wrong? Why do you not rather let yourselves be cheated? By utter failure, Paul meant that even if you won the lawsuit, you'd already lost what was much more important, your testimony of Jesus. I cannot stress this enough. Christian versus Christian in a court is a failure, and by it, the parties destroy their testimony. You can't You can't say the things you want to say about Jesus and then sue other Christians for what are essentially petty matters. Most believers who file a lawsuit will say it was their last resort. The problem with that statement is that Paul said it wasn't a resort at all, not even a last one. Accept wrong, be cheated. What do those words mean in the Greek? They mean to accept wrong and to be cheated. So we can't get any help there. Last few weeks, we've been encountering the principle that it costs you something to be a believer. Accepting wrong and being cheated is something it might cost you to be a believer who refuses to sue another believer. Verse 8, you yourselves do wrong and cheat, and you do these things to your brethren. So Paul finally turned his attention to the offender. 
It was incredible to him that a believer would wrong and cheat anyone, let alone the members of their spiritual family. If thus far it seemed like the offenders were getting off too easy, Paul issued a severe warning in the closing three verses. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. You were washed, you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the spirit of our God. I think this place to start in understanding this is with the phrase, and such were some of you. It indicates a radical difference between the world and the church. The world was outside where non-believers are characterized by this list of awful, evil behaviors, a representative list, not complete. Inside the church, there's grace and mercy and forgiveness and love for one another where none of these other things should exist. It's a safe zone. How many of you have seen the movie, The Omega Man? Oh, gosh. <laughs> the Will Smith uh, did a remake of it, uh, but I, I like the Charlton Heston version, The Omega Man. The, nothing against Will Smith. He's a great actor, but... No one ever had a bumper sticker that said, Will Smith is my president. Remember that? How many of you remember the bumper stickers, Charlton Heston is my president? How old am I? (laughs) I'm still hip and groovy, right? I'm still groovy. (laughs) Anyway, in the Omega Man, in the classic movie that is uh, lauded by critics everywhere, (laughs) must-see sci-fi, He survived a global pandemic that turned everyone else into murderous nocturnal albino mutants. (laughs) It's a great movie. He lived on top of a fortified apartment building equipped with an arsenal of weaponry. Inside, he was safe. Outside was chaos. Typical sci-fi or horror film device. Just outside the house, the fence, the building, or city is terror and destruction. That must be kept out at all costs. There's a clear demarcation between what is safe and good and what is evil. It's a biblical idea. In the Revelation, we read this, Revelation 22. Blessed are those, uh, 14 rather, Revelation 22, 14. Blessed are those who do his commandments that they may have the right to the tree of life and may enter through the gates into the city. Outside are dogs and sorcerers and sexually immoral and murderous and idolaters and whoever loves and practices a lie. Now, what he's saying here isn't that when you wake up in the morning in the heavenly New Jerusalem in your mansion, there aren't beggars and, and liars and you know molesters outside the gates. He's saying that nothing like that could ever possibly exist in heaven. All of that has been judged and is outside. We would say it's in the lake of fire. And now Paul is kind of applying that to the church. He's saying, all of the things you used to be, all of those terrible things that are represented by these, this list I just gave you, that should be outside. None of that should ever be inside the church. And when it is inside the church, then you should deal with it and get it back outside. You know, sci-fi movies, there's always one crazy guy who lets the window open, right? so that everybody can come in and there's the big fight and all that kind of stuff. And you wonder, and the hero kills the bad guy and then the bad guy gets back up and then he kills him again and then he gets back up, you know, that kind of thing. (laughs) Not so in heaven. And so that's the basis. Paul's saying outside, 
keep these things outside because they belong to non-believers. You were like that, but you are no longer. He says, you know, so verse 9 and 10, a reminder that the unrighteous will not be there in heaven. Uh, Now, just a moment talking about these people, terrible things, typical of the flesh. But why do they do these things? They do them because they're not saved. Paul said, you did those things. Some of you maybe did them yesterday or a week ago based on how you, how, you know, when they got saved in Corinth, when they heard the gospel and were saved. He says, but, so understand that people outside the church, they, they are going to act like that. Don't expect them to not act like that. In fact, anytime you go to work and you get through the day relatively unscathed, man, that's a win. You know, I, we always like to complain about work because the non-believers are, God, they're just on you. Yeah, that's their job. It's kind of like the sheepdog and the wolf cartoon. Remember that? They'd punch in together and then the sheepdog, you know, would, the wolf would try and do stuff and the sheepdog would try and do stuff and the wolf never won. But uh, our, our, we're not sheepdogs, we're sheep. But we're protected by the Lord and, and we can endure those kinds of things. So unbelievers, non-believers, they can't help themselves. Now, I do also want to know, by the way, I don't think we need to spend time describing each of these behaviors. Again, it's not his point. His point is, this is all outside. This is representative of hundreds of things he could have listed that belong to the non-believers. What we should notice that's often overlooked, Paul is mentioning these terrible behaviors right alongside of lawsuits. He could easily just have put the word lawsuits in that list. That's what he means. So while we're worried about all of these terrible sins, adultery, fornication, sodomy, homosexuality, and all that, Paul says, yeah, and lawsuits are right up there on that list because they belong outside the church, not inside. Non-believers have no power to change without the promised Holy Spirit, but once they get saved, God affects change from the inside out, and they are different. Then the responsibility is to guard against yielding to our flesh, we don't want to bring, be the one who brings these horrors back into the church. And we should be horrified. I, I don't know if that's the right word in the technical scholarly sense, but Paul is horrified in this section, thinking that this could even really happen. It, it's something I don't think he probably even thought to teach about. It was never on his mind to say, hey, by the way, don't sue each other. He thought it would be the, the last thing that they would do. And such were some of you, but you were washed, sanctified, justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. Gordon Fee writes and says, the previous list is what the wicked are like still, and because of that, they will not inherit the kingdom. Now in Christ Jesus, you are something different, so live like it. Stop defrauding, living in sexual sin, etc., because you are no longer among those who do. Can a believer really act these ways? Well, sure can. The Corinthians were believers who were acting these ways. If pressed, we would say that a person who persists in these behaviors must be unable to overcome them and is therefore not born again. Uh, In that sense, it's a real warning. You say, well, that's kind of a cop-out, but it's not. I mean, experientially, over the years I've been in ministry, I've known a lot of people who thought they were saved. Uh, Not necessarily attending this church, but other churches. And they, they found out One day, they hear the gospel in a real powerful way to them, and they realize that they've been working to get to heaven, or they thought they were saved by some other means. 
Uh, and, and so a person who uh, continually practices these kinds of behaviors and brings them into the church and persists even after discipline, we have to look at that person and say, I, I, you're, you might not be a Christian. Now, some people would say you go so far as declare that they're not a Christian. You say you're an unbeliever, but I don't know what's going on in the heart. I know that non-believers can act like saints and saints can act like the devil. I mean, it's just the way it is, unfortunately. So, but what Paul is saying, what Paul is saying is lawsuits are just as bad as these other sins and they belong outside and you've brought them inside, so get rid of them before I come. Paul described life inside as being washed sanctified, justified. All that God has done for you. He was wronged to make things right for you. You and I can be wronged as well, and we certainly don't want to wrong others. It also anticipates you being face-to-face with the Lord at his reward seat, and that's where this pondering comes in. Do you want to think cheating and wronging a brother or sister or suing those who have wronged you is going to survive his fiery scrutiny on that day? You don't want that monkey on your back. I had to do it. It's like I said last week, be what you already are. Be a person who exercises the right to be wronged. Be a person who has left the behaviors of the old sin nature outside the blood-bought church and doesn't act that way anymore. You've got the power to do it. And if you're unable to do it, then you don't have the Holy Spirit living in you. You're either unwilling or unable. The unwilling repent and start walking with the Lord again. The unable get saved. Let's pray.